0: to 1st Corinthians chapter 6 and just hold it we'll get there eventually 1st Corinthians chapter 6 1st Corinthians chapter 6 1st Corinthians chapter 6 are we all there all right let's pray father we come to this evening and again we are very grateful and very thankful we can be in church tonight. Thank you, Lord, for all those who have chose to be here. And they're here because they're expecting to hear something from heaven. To get some help as we navigate through this mess down here. Constantly with one ear toward heaven, waiting to hear a trumpet blow. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. Spirit of God, stand behind the pulpit, sit next to us. Father, you're, you are our wonderful Father who teaches us, teaches your children, cares for your children. Thank you so much for that. And Lord, all you have got to work with up here is a piece of dirt. And me and my flesh dwells no good thing. And I pray you'd take this clay vessel and fill it with your spirit, your power, your passion, your words, your wisdom. Lord, that we might be edified. And Father, if we leave without having any edification or any help of hearing from heaven we will be disappointed so please minister to us tonight in a very special way and we'll thank you in christ's name amen all right last week and we are we're on a very difficult subject we're getting into a very difficult subject and uh We've gone from talking about uh, civil rights and race and all that and what God thinks about it. I heard an interesting thing the other day. A fellow said, you know, it's amazing that you know, God uh, made flowers, all these different colors. And anywhere around here, the amazing thing about being in Arizona is that uh, every month something is blooming. Some, there's something that has a flower on and beautiful color and, and all that. We, we noticed that going into AJ yesterday as we walked in that, that area there where we do the sign holding. They had the flowers planted beautiful red and orange and then beautiful blue and purple and all that. And the fellow said it's amazing God makes all these different colors for our enjoyment. He makes all these different colored flowers and all that. And yet we get mad at him because he gives us different colored people. That makes sense, huh? Anyway, we talked about that. And then we have taken it in another direction in that the LGBTQ movement has try is trying to use the same justification, the same means for uh, legitimizing their movement as the civil rights people did, and there is a vast, vast difference between how you were born and what how you choose to live and uh, we're going, we've been started discussing that last week, and uh, we want to continue on in that area and I gave you four steps in an argument inductive inductive reasoning there's four four steps and I am going to use terms such as H-S for H-O-M-O, what have you, because we do have some younger people here. And I am going to use uh, terms like uh, relations when you know what I'm talking about um, and things like that. So that's why I'll be saying what I'm saying. You're going to have to interpret what I'm saying. But I'm doing that for the benefit of the young people that are here. Uh, Like I said, this is a difficult thing. I don't like using those words, so I will. I will use things that will help you understand what I'm talking about, um, and at the same time, you'll know where we're going. Now, inductive reasoning: four basic things. We are obligated to do God's will. Number one, and I'm looking at this in light of the fact I gave you some quotes last week from uh, evangelicals, group a group of evangelicals that uh, is gaining some footing who. Uh, for all rights and reasons and purposes you 'd say that 's a that 's a born again child of god that 's a good Christian, except they believe in practicing the h s behavior and they try to justify it and that 's where we disagree and uh so in light of that, since they believe in God, we believe in God, at least we have a common ground as far as the existence of God and God's will. Now, you'll run across people that don't believe in God. Well, this isn't even a, uh, an argument in that, uh, for that uh, situation. You run across people that want to justify things and, and they don't believe in God, then, you know, we covered this last week that um, there is no morality. If there is no God, there is no morality. There is no God. There's no way you can say that's wrong or this is right. And uh, you may be confronted, maybe on the job or or what have you, but you may be confronted at some point by somebody that knows you're a Christian, and they'll walk up to you, and they'll say to you, uh, why do you think the HS lifestyle is wrong? And you can just as uh, equally say to them, why do you think the HS lifestyle is right? And if there's not a God involved in this thing to grant morality of what is right and what is wrong, you have nothing. You have a, jogger, a joggerhead, like a loggerhead. You have a loggerhead. And uh, that's why the existence of God is so important in dealing with this subject. If God exists and God is concerned about his creation and God is concerned about man, he is going to give man some ideas on how to live his nature which is absolutely holy and just, will carry over, and we will know what is right and what is wrong. So the first thing, again, we are all obligated to do God's will, okay? Number two, God's will is expressed in the Bible. Now, you may have an argument there, but God's will is expressed in the Bible. Not too many people are going to disagree with that. Number three, and this is the, this is the, the kicker, that God forbids HS behavior, okay? And number four, therefore, HS behavior is against God's will or is wrong. So if you can go through all four and come to that conclusion, uh, then you've done something. But we have to really prove that God forbids HS behavior in the scripture. You say, well, that's pretty easy. Well, it was at one time. But there are revisionists out there that are doing what they can do, to try to tell us that we have been misinterpreting the Bible for the last 1,800 years or the last uh, 3,000 years we've been misinterpreting it, misreading it, doesn't really mean that. We'll talk about those. But the thing we need to look at beyond those, those questions there is the question, does God forbid H.S. behavior? And I brought this up last week, is that H.S. behavior, is it wrong if it's an orientation or is it wrong because it's an act? Orientation is I have these desires, I feel this way, but has never acted it out. The act is I have this orientation and I've done it. Okay, That's what we're looking at. A person who has HS orientation may never express his orientation in actions. Okay? So who is his sin against? The only person that knows what's going on inside of him. That would be God. You think about what Jesus said. If a man looks upon a woman to lust after her. Has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Did he do it? No. But he's doing it here. And God knows that. So in that case. The vertical. My relationship with God. I have to deal with that. I have to deal with that desire. If I have those desires all the time. It's an orientation. So. I have to deal with that with him, but nobody else vertically has to know anything. About, I'm sorry, vertically, horizontally, nobody else has to know any, anything horizontally about what's going on in here. Uh, that's why our wonderful friends in the Catholic Church they have used that confessional over the centuries to gain information on people and to hold it on them, and that's why we don't do it. You know, the Bible doesn't teach a confessional. We confess our sins to God. He knows what's going on. Those sins are against God. Okay, But when it's out here and it's actions, that's another thing. Then we're sinning in that respect. A person who has an HS orientation may not express that orientation in actions. A person may engage in HSX even if he doesn't have that orientation. He's got the opposite orientation. So... What does the Bible condemn? Does it condemn the actions or the behavior? It condemns the actions, the behavior, not the orientation. Okay? Again, that orientation is between that individual and God. And the smartest thing those people can do or any of us can do, because I have a hunch many of us have orientations in different areas. We, we have flesh. We live in the stinking body of flesh. And you know what the flesh is? It's oriented to all evil. And for some, it's more one thing than the other. The smartest thing to do is don't run around and tell people what your orientation is. And there are churches, I think it's free will Baptist churches. They'll have services where they'll get up and they'll begin to confess in front of everybody. And one guy will stand up and say, Brother, so-and-so, I confess I've been lusting after your wife. That's really not what you want to do. So some things you need to keep to yourself. And between you and God and you and God handle it, okay? What modern psychology has done is they have convinced people that if you think a certain way, that's what you are. And they do that because they're trying to add the numbers. They only have 2%. They're trying to find a way that uh, that that, uh, HS community can be up to 10%. Why 10 percent? Well, politicians supposedly don't really care about what you are or what you believe unless you hit 10 percent. Unfortunately, in this case right here, they seem to be terribly impressed by two or three percent. I don't understand uh, what, what's going on there. But modern psychology tells you, if you've ever had a thought, like, ever have a thought like that in your life it ever, co-? then that's what you are. No, that's not what you are. You're not, you're not what you think. you're what you do. Okay? You're what you do. what actions that you do not what you think, okay? And, you know, you hear this all the time when there's been a shooting or there's been something like that and somebody will get on there and say, well, this, is, this young man we just didn't understand. He always seemed like a nice young man and, and uh, he's, he's, not, he's not what happened. He's not a killer. He's not a murderer. That's not him. And the fact of the matter is, yes, he is a murderer. Yes, he is a killer. And that is him. We are defined by our actions. And I'm sorry that sometimes, you know, with with nurturing and environment or what have you, uh, you have that orientation. I'm sorry you have to deal with that. But you are what you do, okay? At least horizontally speaking. So, again, this will deflate the whole argument. I was born that way genetically. I was raised that way, nurturing Uh, because it doesn't matter, it matters what you do. Now, I I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It matters. It's the reason or the source of the problem. But what matters is what you do or what you don't do. Um, Just because you're genetically disposed, that'd be orientation, genetically disposed to some behavior doesn't mean that behavior is morally right. You can't use excuse. Well, I was born that way. That's just the way I am. No, you're responsible for your actions. And again, we live in a society that tries to find every way they can to justify any kind of behavior. You know, they do studies, genetic studies and what have you. And they find out they believe now that some people have a predisposition uh, to drink, to drink alcohol or to get high. All right, if that's the case, does that mean you should just go out and get drunk, go out and get high, do whatever you want to do, get in your car, drive down the road, kill a young family coming in the other direction because I'm predisposed to be an alcoholic. I'm predisposed to be a drunkard. It doesn't work that way. If you're predisposed to a certain issue, you deal with that issue. It doesn't give you the right to act it out it doesn't give you justification to do that. And the sad thing is, the more you talk about this kind of stuff, the more people are realizing, I can justify my sinful behavior. I can justify what I want to do. And they try to do that. They try to do that in the court system, trying to just because they supposedly had a predisposition or what have you. So, the sober truth of the matter is that we don't fully understand the roles of heredity and environment, and producing the HS orientation. We don't understand all that stuff, but it doesn't really matter. Even if HS were completely genetic, the fact alone wouldn't imply that such a lifestyle is morally acceptable and should be indulged. And then again, we have to ask the question, is there a God? Does God determine morality? Has God determined his opinion of this particular lifestyle. That's what we need to find out. So, suffice it to say, the Bible condemns H.S. actions. Alright? Now, buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to say something here, and I'm going to use First Corinthians chapter 6 to back up what I'm saying, but listen closely. It is perfectly possible to have an H.S. orientation And be a born-again, spirit-filled Christian who is living straight, keeping himself pure. He's burned his rainbow flag. He's said goodbye to his old friends. And he's living straight, keeping himself pure, to be able to be in a church and worship Jesus Christ just like you and I. Say, preacher, wait a minute, those people are reprobate. Remember when that went around? Anybody that was of that orientation, of that, of that uh, lifestyle, they were reprobate. And a reprobate can't get saved. I'm going to show you in 1 Corinthians 6 that's wrong. And before you say, well, people like that shouldn't, shouldn't be in church. People like, uh, there's a whole list of people. And we all fit in one of them. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about the unrighteous. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. So the first three, two of them have to do with uh, uh, that. Okay, Fornication and adultery. The next one, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Two types right there. And if you want to divide up the HS behavior, you have one part that's very effeminate. Let's see, what's effeminate? Feminine-like. That's the obvious ones. And then you have the other side where they may not appear that way. They may appear masculine, They may, but they're very aggressive and they're very abusive. Okay? That's the basic two sides of that particular, uh, very general, the basic two sides of that particular sin. But notice it's listed there, the effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, they're part of that group, nor covetous. Oh, we just bounce over that word, don't we? Realize one of the biggest sins in America is covetousness. That's why if you sit down to watch a television program, you're going to see six minutes of the show and three or four minutes of commercial and six minutes of the show and three or four minutes of commercials because marketing has understood that if they keep flashing something in front of your eyes, even though you don't need it, they keep flashing something in front of your eyes, you're going to start to want it. It's called covetousness. And you're not going to be happy with what you have. I told you before, I almost became a car salesman in Toledo years and years ago. Carl F. Weisenberger Chevrolet. I almost became a car salesman. I sat down with the, with the guy. We had like three or four interviews or whatever. He, he never, he, he, he came to the conclusion, he said, I don't think you can sell cars. And uh, I come to the conclusion, I don't think I can sell cars either. <laughs> but we talked about cars. He said, do you realize you take a, a model, whatever model it is. He said, every year so they change something. They change the way the headlights may look or the taillights or something, just something to make a change. He says, you know why they do that? Because when you see the new ones come out, you know what your, your, your car, it's only one year old. You know what your car looks like to you? Old. My car's not like that. It doesn't have those cool things there. And then the next year they'll change something else. And the next year they'll change something else. And all those changes are made to make you think that the car you were perfectly satisfied a few months ago, now you don't want it because it's old. Covetousness. Covetousness. You can't keep your eyes off the catalogs. You sit to do some studying or what have you uh, online and the pop up starts showing up and pretty soon you're chasing this new thing and that new thing. And, and you say, well, I, I want this and I want that and I want that. That's called covetousness. Anybody in here like that? Don't, don't, don't raise your hands. And remember, you're part of this group I'm just reading about. You're part of the adulterers, the idolaters, uh, the uh, fornicators, the effeminate, the abusers of themselves with mankind, the thieves, etc. You're part of that if you're covetous. And it says, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a group, isn't it? There's that whole group unrighteous, not going to make it. Look at verse eleven. And such were some of you. He says to the church at Corinth, you know, you were in that group. Such were some of you. You know what we can say about Gospel Light Baptist Church? Such were some of you. Well, what happened? But you're washed, and we're not talking tide. We're talking the blood of Jesus Christ. You're sanctified. That's the first thing the Lord does when he saves you, begins to sanctify you. And justified. In the sight of God, you're just as if you'd never sinned. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All of us here fit one of those things there. And we walk in the church and we talk about, I'm saved by the grace of God, glory to God, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And you're involved in ministry, and you're doing this, and you're doing that uh, as a trophy of Jesus Christ. Now, let me add one thing to this. If somebody comes in here and they say, "Preacher, I used to be part of that HS. I I used to be part of the L of alphabet people, but now I'm saved. I've trusted Christ as my Savior, and I'm I'm living right. I'm living straight. I'm I've got married, and what have you? That'd be great." They would be accepted just like you are. But let me say this. That person will be allowed to be involved in any ministry if it has to do with evangelism or uh, being part of the security team or being an usher or uh, what have you. They will never be allowed to be involved in children's ministry. Preacher, how can you say that? I say that because of this. In the Family Research Council, the fact is particularly disturbing. HSs comprise just 2% of the population and are responsible for 33% of the child sexual abuse. They offend against children at 16 times the rate of the normal population. So, well, yeah, but, but they got saved. And you know, some people that get saved fall back into their old lifestyle. And one of those falls back into their old lifestyle and they're working with children. There could be a very serious problem. So the church position is that if that's the lifestyle that they came out of, they can be involved in any ministry that doesn't involve children. But they will not be Sunday school teachers. They will not be junior church workers. They will not be involved. And you say, preacher, that's not fair. Well, let me tell you how it works. I have to give an account for you before the judgment seat of Christ. And I would rather have him tell me that wasn't fair than to have a parent sit in front of me in my office in tears saying, how could you let that man get his hands on my child? So if you don't think that's fair, you take it up with him. So I wouldn't do that if I was preaching. Well, that's why you're not the preacher, okay? That's our policy. I don't think that's unfair. I think it's using wisdom. Anyway. Comparing the civil rights issues with the LGBTQ issues. You know, one of the things we found out when we studied the civil rights thing was the terrible misinterpretation of Scripture as regarding uh, the slaves and as regarding Africans. Uh, We looked at the verses where they supposedly condemned the black race. We looked at verses where supposedly they were cursed, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, and showed how ridiculous that interpretation of the Scripture was. Well, the alphabet people say, you people are doing the same thing. You're taking scriptures, you're misinterpreting them, you're applying them to us and condemning us, and you're wrong in your interpretation of scripture. Okay, I guess we'll have to look at the scriptures. Are we Bible believers misinterpreting scripture as a means to condemn the alphabet people? Remember the argument. We are all obliged to do God's will, number two, God's will is expressed in the Scriptures, in the Bible. And number three, the Bible forbids homosexual, uh, H.S. behavior. Or it doesn't. Therefore, H.S. behavior is against God's will or is wrong, or it isn't. You see what we have to do? We have to show from Scripture that what the interpretation that we have is correct. And churches need to understand The strategy and the argument of those who seek to revise and redefine historic Christian teaching. You know when somebody comes and says well you got it all wrong. This has been the interpretation for 1800 years New Testament. Beyond that 3500 years if you count the Old Testament. This has been the interpretation. And suddenly in a particular day and age in which we live these people are rising up and saying no you've had it all wrong. That's what Muhammad did. Muhammad shows up as this Weird uh, devil-induced whatever in a cave and says God talked to him. And by the time this devil is done talking to Muhammad, he says to the world, you've had this thing all wrong. You've taught that Jesus Christ was crucified. This is 600 years later. You you believe that Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the dead and uh, it's preached all over the world. He said, but I'm here to tell you, who was never in Israel, couldn't speak Hebrew or Greek, lived in a desert. He said, I'm here to tell you, you've had it all wrong. And was able to gain the influence that he gained so he could spread that nonsense as it is today. That is the mark of a cult or a false religion. We had the New Testament, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We knew what the truth was. We knew what the gospel was. And then this guy named Joe Smith is digging around in a hill in uh, uh, New York. What's the name of the city? Palmyra, digging around a hill in Palmyra, New York, and supposedly finds the another gospel. Now that's how cults start. That's exactly how cults start. Charles Taze Russell, who was the founder of the Millennial Dawn Group, which eventually became the Jehovah Witnesses, the same aspect. You know, you people have had it wrong. Christendom, he calls it. Christendom has had it wrong for all these years, and we're here to tell you that Jesus Christ was not God. He was Michael the Archangel, and and the whole thing starts. That's the mark of a cult. And so if you've got an organization that says, you know, you've had it all wrong for these years and we're, we're going to set it straight, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't buy that. But anyway, they seek to revise and redefine Christian historic teaching, historic Christian teaching, <laughs> regarding HS lifestyle. Revisionists, these scholars, these activists advance the notion that the HS uh, lifestyle is an issue over which people of goodwill can differ. Or they claim that there is no clear answer to the issue. Then they recommend under the rubric of fairness that churches appoint task force to study the issue. We're not appointing a task force to study the issue. We're not putting a group together to try to determine what's right or wrong. The task force is standing here tonight. We'll let you know what is right and what is wrong from your Bible. Because the ultimate task force is your scriptures. And that's what we'll go by. They'll claim that biblical passages that prescribe H.S. Acts do not actually refer to H.S. They are more only, most, They at most only condemn an abusive form of that. One fellow said Scripture condemns H.S. lifestyle, but then argued that the biblical writers are only reflecting culturally conditioned moral beliefs of a pre-scientific culture. Boy, that makes it sound good, doesn't it? That's impressive, right? <laughs> Which then leads to love, commitment, and mutuality trumping explicit moral imperatives, and then justifies the H.S. relationships. Okay, that's how it works. You know, other people disagree with us. You know, you guys, you know, you need to be fair and equitable and what have it. And let's just concentrate on just the love and, and the mutual um, mutuality and the commitment that these people have. And no, I'm sorry, we have a God who has a moral, holy nature who has expressed that holy and moral nature in the scripture and he has laid out rather clearly what he says is right and what he says is wrong so there are three times in the old testament three times in the new testament where the subject is specifically addressed okay there are more but where it's specifically or directly uh, expressed then we'll look at three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. So, let's begin where it all began. Let's go to Genesis 19. Genesis chapter 19. One of the ways you can tell when somebody is trying to promote something, then they're calling it scriptural. And when they promote it, you sit back and laugh. You know that this can't be the possible interpretation. And this is hilarious stuff here when you listen to how they think it should be interpreted. Let's read Genesis 19. Let's start at verse 4. But before they lay down, now this is the angelic beings. Remember, Moses had three visitors, two angels and Jehovah God, manifest in the flesh. The two angels went ahead to Sodom. Abraham had his conversation with with Jehovah, you know, if there are 50 righteous, are you going to destroy it? Or if there are 45, he's thinking about Lot. And the Lord finally said, all right, if there's 10, if I can find 10 righteous, I won't destroy the city. And then he heads for Sodom. Well, when the angels get there, they get there first. And it says in verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, now they went to Lot's house, even the men of Sodom compassed the house round, both old and young, All the people from every quarter. All right, so we get the picture. The two angelic beings who appeared to these people as men went into Lot's house. Before they could get to bed, Lot's house is surrounded. Verse 5. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Where are these guys? Then they said this, Bring them out unto us that we may know them. Okay? And keep in mind that word know. Verse six, Lot went out at the door unto them, shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. So Lot was under the impression that what they wanted to do, their idea of knowing them was wicked. Verse eight, Behold now I have two daughters which have not no man, let me I pray you bring them out un- bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only to- unto these men do nothing, for they are come under the shadow of my roof. That, to me, amazes me. That a man could offer his two daughters, two virgin daughters, to these perverts. I could have never done that. But he's going. Lot Lot is to the point, and I don't know if he's that terrified. I don't know if he's to the point where he really, really, really does not want anything to happen to those angels, not realizing his city's going to be destroyed tomorrow anyway. But that just amazes me that a man could take two of his young daughters and offer them to these people here anyway verse nine they said stand back and they said again this one fellow came into sojourn and he will now be now he will needs be a judge Uh, they're talking about a lot he said who is this guy He, he came in here to live now suddenly he's acting like he's the boss Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even lot, and came near to break the door. And we know how the story ends. But what I want you to get is this. Here's how one of the revisionists says how we should interpret it. And this guy, as early as 1955, he was an Anglican priest named Derek Sherwin Bailey. No relation to my dog. Oh, maybe he is. I don't know. (laughs) suggested the theory used by many of the HS activists today that the sin of Sodom, and are you ready for this? The sin of Sodom was in hospitality. Lot should have been more hospitable. He should have let us meet these people because they just wanted to get to know him, know them. <laughs> right. In a book called H.S. and the Western Christian Tradition, Bailey suggested that the opposition to homosexuality in the Christian tradition was based upon a mistranslation of the Hebrew word yada, translated to "know." And Sodom's sin, concludes Bailey, consisted of the men of the city reacting with violence to Lot's refusal to be hospitable, thus causing a breach of the rules of hospitality. See what I'm saying? When somebody has to try to go against the Bible to prove an error, they get really silly and stupid. That's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Let's look at it a little closer. Anyway, uh, Peter J. Gomes, I should say, Harvard Divinity School, states this, quote, The attempted H-S-R-A-P-E of the angels at Lot's door, while vivid and distasteful, is hardly the subject of the story or the cause of punishment, H-S-R, R-A-P-E, an abomination before God. He said that would be bad for them to do that as a -A R-A-P-E. That would be very bad. But he said this instance of attempted H-S-R, however, does not invalidate all H-S or all H-S activity. He said the only sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was that these people got upset, they got mad, and attempted a R. If they hadn't attempted to R the men it would not have been a sin. So let's refute this. The word no, um, Hebrew word, and I normally don't go to the Hebrew, but I have to this time, yada, occurs twice in the context. You say it's pronounced yada. You wouldn't want to pronounce it yada, yada, yada. (laughs) So it's yada. So how is yada used when referring to Lot's daughters? as people that had not known a man. Does that mean they were never hospitable to men? Or that they never had any kind of relations with a man? Were they in violation of the rules of hospitality? When Lot said, I have two daughters that have never known a man, we know exactly what he was talking about. Not talking about inhospitality. Talking about that they were virgins. Robin Scroggs, who is another revisionist, says this, it seems to me difficult to deny the sexual intent of the sodomites. I still believe the traditional interpretation to be correct. And that's one of them. So here's one guy who says, no, that can't be right. Because when you look at it, it doesn't make sense. This is a hospitality thing. Uh, if the issue was hospitality, why did Lot refuse to let them in the house? We just want to get to meet them, get to know them. Why would Lot have kept them out of the house? Because this is not what they meant. okay. And then he says this. Why did he say in verse 7 to these guys that wanted to get to know these men? Why did he say, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Is it wicked to get to know somebody? But Lot knew what they were talking about and he called it wickedly. He went on to say in verse 8. I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. So Lot's intention was to offer his daughters to these men so they could be hospitable to them? I don't think so. Verse 9. Verse 9. These are the men that said, Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? So there's a worse form of hospitality or inhospitality? Are they talking about hospitality or are they talking about RAPE? And in verse 11, we didn't read down to verse 11, but in verse 11 it says, And they smote the men. I mean, Lot was at the door. They're closing in on him. And the two angels stepped out the door and put the whammy on these people and they went blind. Okay? Okay. But here's the interesting thing. They smote the men that were at the door of the house of blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Really? You're that interested in getting to know them that even though you're blind, you're going to wander around all night to try to be able to get to know them? What a stupid interpretation. They were so perverted and they were so evil that even though they were blind, they still pursued their desires. And nowhere, by the way, in the Old Testament is inhospitality listed as an abomination. But sodomy is. Now, is this about HSR? The the initial intention wasn't to do that. But the initial intention was to have a party, I guess you could say, with these guys. And they didn't get angry until Lot refused their request. Sodom was known for their abominable behavior long before this event. Go to Genesis 13. This didn't just happen overnight. This has been going on. Genesis 13, 13. And here's a case where 13, 13 really means 13, 13. This is Triskaidekaphobia on steroids right here, 13, 13. Look what it says. But the men of Sodom are wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. You know when that was said? When Lot made the decision, I want to live there. And the Lord just put that in there. You're going the wrong place, son. These men are wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Go to Genesis 18. This is where the Lord came and visited Abraham. Verse 20, and the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Because their sin is very grievous. I don't think he said that about other cities. Maybe Nineveh. But that's almost a specific thing for Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin is great. Their sin is very grievous. The cry is very great. Verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. If not, I'll know. God said, I'm going to walk into that city as a man. I took upon myself flesh. I'm going to walk into that city and see just exactly what what they attempt to do to me. But he said, I've heard the cry. I've heard the cry. And there were people in Sodom and Gomorrah that were crying out because of the wickedness. So I thought they were all of that way. They may have been. That doesn't mean everybody's happy. I mean, you do some study on this stuff. There's a lot of violence that takes place in that lifestyle. And there were some that were crying out, maybe even in their wicked condition, maybe even crying out to God saying, help. Because the Lord heard them. Cry, their cry. He heard somebody crying. Go to Ezekiel 16. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 16. And some of the defenders of the H.S. lifestyle will stop at verse 49, and that's the mistake. Because if you read Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, he tells us what the sin of, a, of, a, of Sodom was. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness. Okay, Three things, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like it could possibly also be a reference to the United States of America? Because we're full of pride. Nobody can tell anybody anything. Nobody wants to be judged. Don't judge me. You know, so full of pride we can't be corrected at times. American pride, you know, marching down the street pride, fullness of bread. Fullness of bread. You know, there are other countries that can only dream about what we see at Walmart and Fry's and different places like that. They can only dream about that. We take it for granted. We walk in the grocery stores, and if the one thing that we want is not there, we get upset. Don't you have any more of that when you have 50 other versions of it on the shelf? But I want that. And the only time we've seen shelves get bare and get empty was when we had the pandemic, and it had to do with the toilet paper. That's, that's what went first. We have fullness of bread. We have pride. We have fullness of bread. And we have an abundance of idleness. So, oh, Preacher, we're busy. In scripture, if you're not working and producing and being productive, then you're being idle. Whether you're standing around. Remember the Lord said that to that group of people in that parable, why stand you here idle all day? And he said, nobody hired us. So if you weren't working, you are idle. Well, Americans are idle quite a bit. We're idle when we ride our four-wheelers out in the desert. We're idle when we hit the golf course. We're idle when we take our boats out all the time to go fishing. We're idle when we, whatever it is we do. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm just saying work comes first. And yet in America, we have thrown around the idea again of a four-day work week. Because the two-day weekend just isn't long enough. Because I want to play. I've got a lot of things I want to do. I've got all these toys. And I want to go out and play. Shooting for a four-day work week. Yet the Bible says six days shall a man labor. But we have, we only want to work, work four days because we want to play. We've got abundance of idleness. We've got, you know, sounds like America to me. But it's Sodom here, Okay. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Now look at verse 50. Because the other the revisionist will stop right there. And see, he'll say, look, verse 49 doesn't say anything about the HS lifestyle. Well, I found out that sometimes you have to read the verse after that verse. Because that's the basics of reading. You don't just pick out one sentence and say, well, that's it. Look at verse 50. And they were haughty. And committed abomination before me, therefore I took them away as I saw good. You want me to tell you which abomination he's talking about? Probably most of the abominations, but there is one in particular. And that lifestyle is considered an abomination. I'll show you some other verses as we get going here. But there it is right there. Yeah, it mentions the HS lifestyle as abomination along with the pride and the fullness of bread and the abundance of idleness. Isn't it, uh, can, we, can we see a relationship here with the prosperity of America and the uh, fun that we can have in America and the pride that we have? And have you noticed that things of um, the HS lifestyle have seemed to come up more Maybe it has something to do with the pride and the fullness of bread and the abundance of idleness. Leviticus 18. Now, if you have a question about if this lifestyle is abomination, Leviticus 18.22 should clarify that. It says in verse 22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Any question on that? Abomination, by the way, is the feeling of extreme disgust and hatred, abhorrence, detestation, loathing. Webster's 19.13 says, That which is abominable, anything hateful, wicked, or shamefully vile, an object or state that excites, excites disgust and hatred, Hateful or shameful vice pollution, that's an abomination. Does that lifestyle fit that definition? I think it does. Let me give you one more and we'll be done for the night. Go to Jude 7. Jude 7. And Jude says this. Even as so he's making a comparison, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication what is fornication? Any act like that outside of marriage it doesn't have to be hetero, it could be HS. It could be bestiality, anything outside of of the confines or the, or the, the um, parameters of marriage, one man, one woman, anything outside of that would be considered fornication. Okay? He says giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Strange flesh. Well, what is the context of this? He said, even as. So the verse before that has to do with angelic beings who left their first estate, desiring relations with human women. We talk about the sons of God and the daughters of men. In other words, angels with women would be unnatural and strange. Verse 7, even as, references Sodom and Gomorrah, in which the natural use of the opposite sex, Romans 1, was rejected for men with men and women with women. That was strange. So they went after strange flesh. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah was all about, giving themselves over to fornication. The fact that the men of Sodom were intent upon having HS relations with Lot's visitors, even to the point... Of force does not reduce their crime to merely the use of force. They were they were wrong doing that. They were wrong desiring the angelic beings that came into Sodom and Gomorrah to Lot's house, but they had been living a wrong lifestyle since Genesis thirteen. And God condemned it. And you can't say, well, you know, it was just that act of wanting to force. No. Other scriptures say they were guilty of that long before they wanted to do the A, the R, R R-A-P, wanted to do that. They were guilty of that long before. And the fact that Lot knew when they came to his house what they wanted to do tells you what kind of people those were. So Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, is rather clear. It dispels the idea of it was just inhosp- inhospitality dispels the idea that they were only guilty because it was a, a rape situation. Uh, it lets you know that these people in Sodom and Gomorrah were living this way had given themselves over to fornication. they were all about going after strange flesh and uh, committing abomination all right and that's just one section of the Old Testament we've got more to talk about, but uh, we'll get into that next week. Anybody else have, any, any, have anyone have any questions or any comments or? Anything like that? All right. I'm trying to try to keep that cryptic so it could be acceptable to every little ear. Uh, all right. Well, let's close in prayer. Don't forget uh, we have church Thursday night, seven o'clock. Still going through the Book of Proverbs by topic, and uh, it's a good study. We're having you ought to be there. If you're not, to uh, thank you for coming tonight. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your Word. We thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for clarity. Lord, you've given us your word. You've given us the ability to read and understand. You've given us your spirit to help us to comprehend things. And Lord, we live in a very wicked world. And this stuff is promoted all the time. Help us to weather the storm, if you will, and to refute it and possibly refuting it well enough where someone might realize it's a sin and confess it for that and get right with you and trust you as their Savior and be born again. What a glorious thing that would be. I well, thank you, Father, for being such a wonderful God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the home in heaven that you've promised. And again, Lord, anytime you want to blow that trumpet, let it blow. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to be in heaven with you. Until then, Lord, help us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you are dismissed. Thank you for coming. Appreciate you being here.